Our reading this morning from God's Holy Word is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 15 and extending to the end of the chapter. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He does not say, quote, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, quote, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus." For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was a teenager, starting around 10, I could not wait for adulthood to arrive. I absolutely desired adulthood to get there. I fit fairly uncomfortably into my family structure, and even at the young age of 10, there were fault lines developing, and I was longing. I wanted adulthood to come. There were people who told me, now, uh, you know, childhood is absolutely the best years of your life. You're going to look back on those years, and you're going to want them. They're going to have been just the best years. Well, the only thing I can figure is people who say that either have really bad memories or they had a very different childhood. I was longing for adulthood to arrive. And when it arrived, my life changed And quite frankly, everything truly did get better. I am totally unrepentant. I am very glad I was longing for adulthood, and I'm happy to be an adult. Adulthood came. 
But was adulthood as a concept ever actually missing during any of my lifetime? When I was a six-year-old, there were adults all around me. They had adulthood. There were old men and old women who had lived long ages, who were obviously adult and then some. I didn't possess adulthood. I was a child. Adulthood had not come to me yet, but adulthood was in the world. It had been in the world ever since God created the world. Adam, Eve were created adult. From the very moment go, you had adulthood in the world, but adulthood had not come to me yet, and I was longing for it to come. We looked at this passage three weeks ago. We focused on one major focus of it that was incredibly important for us to understand, and that was Paul here is saying that what happened on Mount Sinai was effectively a republication, an explication, a giving in absolute fullness of what the first covenant meant all those times God said, I am the Lord your God, walk before me and be blameless. That little phrase sounds so innocuous, doesn't it? I'm the Lord your God, I'm in in fellowship with you, I'm in covenant with you, Uh, all I want out of you is walk before me and be blameless. Easy peasy, right? Well, no. No. When God spoke on Sinai and gave the law of Moses, God said, now let me explain to you what walking before me and be blameless is, and it's not exactly what people thought. It is something that grabs hold of the entire being, it grabs hold of the mind, the heart, the will, it grabs hold of every action. God, when he spoke through Moses, said blamelessness is absolutely what it sounds like. It is absolute moral perfection. Well, if you want to know what moral perfection is, if you honestly want to know what a perfect life would be like written down on paper, here it is. God republished, he respoke, he explained in minute detail what the first covenant would imply, and it was overwhelming. Uh, This is the way God's relationship with mankind has been since God created man. This is what was undergirding what God said to Adam and to Eve the moment they were created. You will take care of my creation, you will be my under-shepherds, You'll be fruitful and multiply. Basically, you'll do everything I tell you. That was what was undergirding it. They understood that. That was the essence of the first covenant. And in some ways, now not in total by any means, and in fact, uh, in more ways not, but in some ways, every human being is still affected by the first covenant. If you are... In the Lord Jesus Christ, if by faith God has put you in him, why did he do that? 
Well, it's because if you relate to God on the basis of the first covenant, your lack of moral perfection is going to be glaringly obvious on the last day, and you're going to be damned. And you're put into Jesus Christ so that on the last day, God will look at him and will see his moral perfection, and he will stand for you, and God will see all of his righteousness that you now own in him, and you will be received into God's glory forever. But all of this is still about the first covenant. Jesus Christ did do the perfect works of the law. Jesus Christ was morally perfect. There is no sin in him anywhere. And when Jesus Christ saves you and you walk into heaven, you are absolutely walking into heaven on the basis of the first covenant. You are walking into heaven on the basis of works. You are walking into heaven on the basis of Jesus Christ's works, not yours. So uh, we saw that, uh, you know, there, there are certain aspects of the first covenant that we will go into judgment day in, and uh, everything about Sinai was first covenant, including its sacraments. The, uh, the uh, ceremonies, the, the washings, the, the symbolic things, they were all about the first covenant, uh, Circumcision is about the first covenant, and Paul has already mentioned circumcision earlier in the book. Um, the way that worship was done prior to the coming of Christ was first covenant. It was all about first covenant. And finally, we ended with the thought that you are absolutely mad, you are out of your mind, if you want to relate to God on the basis of the first covenant. If you want to stand before God and say, I will be your servant and you will be my God because honestly I am morally perfect and I deserve this, you are utterly out of your mind. It is not going to happen. So that was, that's a summary of the last sermon. And, and that, that concept that Sinai is God explaining to the nth degree what moral goodness is and what the first covenant looks like, that has to be absolutely understood to understand this passage. But there is a lot more to this passage. And we did not look at the more, because we didn't have time. This morning, we're going to look at the more. What more should we consider when we look at verse 15 to the end of the chapter? Well, the first thing that jumps to mind is verse 23. There we read, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Now, what does that mean? The average evangelical believes it to mean this. God related to a chosen people for thousands of years, that was called Israel, and God related to them strictly on the basis of Moses' law, and men stood or falled before him on the basis of Moses' law. But when you walked past that thin little page in your Bible that's blank, except it says now the New Testament, and you turned that page and you got to Matthew 1.1, then, quote, faith came 
because Jesus Christ is the focus of faith, all those Hebrew scriptures were about the law, but now faith has come in Jesus Christ, and now it's all about relating to God in faith. Faith has come, and so the law has no purpose, and uh, faith is now because of Jesus. That's, that's how the average evangelical understands that. There's some problems with that. In our passage here, in verse 3 through 9, which, which I didn't read, it's earlier in the passage, Paul is moving into this uh, state, and we read this, verse 5 through 9. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just, now that's a comparative word, just as Abraham, who is not exactly New Testament, Abraham appears in the middle of the book of Genesis, which is the very first book of the Hebrew Bible, just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, the gospel. Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So, looks like Abraham had faith. And it looks like that was really kind of a big deal. In fact, uh, the term faith shows up here more than you might expect because... In English, uh, belief and faith sound like different words. In the original Greek, faith is the noun and believing is the verb. So if you are possessing faith, if you have it, it's the word faith. If you're doing faith, if you're faithing, then you're believing in English. It's all pistuo in the Greek. And so in these few verses, Paul says now... Your relationship with God, are you going to base it on the law? Are you going to base it on the spirit which has been given, which has come by the hearing of faith? That's the way Abraham and his religion worked. Abraham, thousands and thousands of years before Jesus Christ, believed God, had faith in God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. That's what you want, right? You want what Abraham had. In fact, Paul is quoting Genesis 15, 6, which is the very first time in the Bible the word faith or belief shows up. Now, it's not the first time you see people having it, but it is the first time the word is used. And Paul says, now, your, your religion in Jesus Christ should be normatively like that of Abraham. When he wrote about the same sort of thing in Romans chapter 4, Paul broadened it out a little. And in verse 1 through 8, he says this, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So, talking about the same thing, Paul in Romans, spilling a little bit more ink, says now, just like Abraham was justified by belief, by faith, so was David, the psalmist. David writes about the blessedness of being forgiven because of faith, and then he quotes Psalm 38, which again is very Old Testament, it's very Hebrew scriptures, and David himself is very much in the Old Testament. He is after Moses and Sinai, but he is very clearly before Matthew 1.1. And so the evangelical way of interpreting before faith came, the law did this, can't really stand. So what does it mean when Paul says, now before faith came, the law did this for us? Well, that's what my introduction to this sermon was about. I wanted to be an adult. I was not an adult. But I lived in a world where adulthood was all around me. It's just I didn't have it yet. Adulthood needed to come to me. And I wasn't ready for adulthood yet. Don't get me wrong. I was a child. I needed to mature. I needed teachers. I needed guidance. And my life was filled with people who actually filled that role. Uh, they, they weren't the usual people, but they were very much there, and they were very important to me. Adulthood needed to wait, and I needed to be developed into it, but it would come to me, the individual, when it would come, and when it came, it was transformative. That doesn't mean it wasn't in the world. Adulthood was everywhere. It just needed to come to me. And that's what Paul is saying about faith coming. Uh, He's actually writing about the individual. And you would think the average evangelical would grab hold of that because the average evangelical really emphasizes the individuality of Christian religion. And he's not wrong. There, There is a Jesus loves me, even me, uh, though known, none go with me, still I will follow kind of aspect to the Christian faith. And evangelicals love it and they emphasize it, so you would think they would grab hold of it here, but for some reason they really don't. Paul is talking about faith coming to you. Over and over again, we're told that faith is a gift from God. It's not generated in the human heart by the human heart. There is a kind of faith that the human heart can generate. It's no better than the faith that demons have. 
and it won't get you to heaven. But God, by His Spirit, working through the preaching of the Word, works faith in you. And there was a time when you didn't have it. And there would come to be a time when you do have it. And that is what Paul is talking about. He is talking about that moment of spiritual conversion, that moment when God is pleased to bring you to life, that moment when he changes you far more than from childhood to adulthood, when he spiritually brings you to spiritual life, that's when faith comes and the law no longer works with you like it did. It had an appropriate way to work with you, but now it's different because you have been transformed. Now there's plenty of room for sanctification. Paul uses... You know, growing up language in this passage. He talks about you needed a tutor, and that's what a child needs. So Paul is actually using the same imagery. Uh, when I became an adult at 18, I assure you I was still pretty childish. But I had become an adult. There was plenty of room for me to mature, but a transformation had happened. Well, when faith comes, there's plenty of room for sanctification. The, the moment you are brought to spiritual life, contrary to what our Wesleyan friends tell us, you just don't go directly to spiritual moral perfection. You, you don't. And that's okay. I mean, God's going to work with you. Sanctification is going to be your whole life. But a transformation has happened. You have been brought to life. The Holy Spirit has worked this in you. Uh, faith has come. And this is the way things have happened since the very Garden of Eden. What happens the moment that God shows up and man has sinned and man has fallen into death? What what does God say to man at that point? He brings a curse on man and he tells him what the curse is going to be. But then in Genesis 3.15... God makes a promise of restoration. He says there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. The the, the snake will bruise the seed of the woman's heel, but the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. That's language that God is saying, I'm going to send a very special individual, because quite frankly, women don't have seed, So this is going to have to be a virgin birth. I'm going to send a virgin-born person to crush the devil's head, and he's going to be very, very hurt by what happens, but he is going to absolutely destroy the devil's work. And this is a promise in Genesis, the third chapter, the very first book of the Hebrew Bible, This is a promise from God of restoration. And what does God expect from us if he makes us a promise? If if you make a promise to someone, what do you expect from them if you make a promise to them? You expect to be believed, don't you? I mean, if you promise somebody you're going to do something, the essence of a promise is they believe you, And now you are in a relationship based on promise, 
and you're an honorable person. You're going to do what you said, right? Because you made a promise. So now the relationship is established by them believing you and you doing what you said. Now, you are not morally perfect, and you may, in fact, not keep your promise. But God is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly good. When God makes a promise, he is always going to keep it. And when he makes a promise to you, he expects you to believe it. So that is the very dynamic of what's happening at the fall of man. The relationship between God and man is you are cursed, terrible things are going to happen, death is brought into the world, and as we go further into the Bible, we're going to see that death and hell are very intimately linked. But having said all of that, God then turns around and makes a promise, I'm going to destroy the devil's work, and you're supposed to believe it. And Abraham believes it, and it's credited to him for righteousness. So this has been happening since human history has been happening. Next, we ought to ask the question, what positive aspects does the law play in our lives before the coming of this faith? For the purpose of my sermon three weeks ago, and really it's a major theme here, I had to focus on the negative aspects of God's law. God's law condemns anyone under the first covenant and they go to hell. So that's really very negative. But the law is holy, righteous, and good. And Paul doesn't write totally negatively about the law here at all. In fact, actually, there are some very positive things that Paul says the law does. Uh, Three, in particular, in our passage. The first one, in verse 22 is that the law confines all under sin so that men may find grace. Or to read the verse, uh, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ may be given to those who believe. Now you may be saying that sounds an awful lot like we've said before, the law condemns those under the first covenant and they go to hell, so why is that positive? Well, Paul is actually talking very positively here. He is saying the law drives you to Christ and Christ is the way that you don't have to relate to God by the law. And that was never a really good way to do it to begin with. If it were a good way to do it, you wouldn't have mankind falling away from it. Now, it's been said that God gave a number of commandments in the garden, and man only broke one of them. But, you know, that was kind of shooting fish in a barrel. The other commands were, take care of the cute, fuzzy animals, work when work doesn't have any thorns, um, be fruitful and multiply, which mankind has never had any problem with. Oh, and by the way, here is a fruit tree that looks delicious, don't eat it. So really, the only commandment here that was kind of hard was the, the fruit, and man broke it in record time. Relating to God on the basis of moral righteousness is a terror. One sin against a holy God, one slip up, one act of your own will, damnation. The angels fell this way, 
The angels rebelled against God, and when they rebelled, God presented no absolution for them, no way of salvation. The angels fell, and God said, bye. And they are now the devils. They are now the demons. But for man, God set up a system where his elect people would relate to God by faith, the Spirit of God would work in the hearts of men, the Word of God would sanctify them, the giving of the law actually facilitates this transition. And that is actually a very, very positive thing that you should thank God for. It's weird, but you can actually say, O Lord my God, I am grateful that I was a fallen creature, because now that I'm not a fallen creature, I relate to you on the basis of your absolute grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. That is a gift divine. That is inexpressible blessing. And the law set that up. In the next verse, in verse 23, we find out that the law, quote, kept us under guard, or to, again, to read it. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. What is Paul talking about there? Well, let's go back and be kids again. When you were eight, were there a number of things that you would have loved to have done that mom and dad said don't do that you absolutely would have done if you didn't think mom and dad would tan your hide? I mean, let's, you know, let's be real here. Were, were there things like that? There were for me. Again, I had some godly people in my life, some father figures, and they would have tanned my hide. I did not realize most of what they were telling me was actually for my good, for my protection, for my raising, for my maturity. A number of times there were things I would have loved to have stolen from the cookie jar, which I didn't because they would get in trouble. Before faith comes... Morality is a pretty external thing. When faith comes, the Holy Spirit begins to work the the fruits of the Spirit in you, and the fruits of the Spirit are really moral things. Goodness, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, all those things. They are moral attributes, but before faith comes, the Spirit's not really working them in you. But before faith comes, you do need to know what right and wrong is, and you need to be protected from what happens if you do the wrong. We were talking about that in in the Proverbs study this morning. There is a natural law that if you go against the righteousness of God, it may not happen overnight. In fact, usually it doesn't. But if you go against the law of God, if you break his morality, a slow burn begins to happen, and you burn to a crisp ultimately. You are utterly ruined by wickedness if you enter into it. Well, before faith came, the law restrained us. The law taught us what was right, and the law taught us what was wrong, 
And while we have the law of God on our hearts, and while it comes out as the conscience, it's broken there, and we don't really know it well. The law tells us what's right and wrong, and more than that, the law tells us exactly what God is going to do to us if we break it. And so, uh, why don't I kill my extremely annoying, grumpy neighbor that every now and then I've wanted to shoot because he wants to take my fence away, because he wants to build his own fence on my property? Why don't I shoot him? Well, um, I'd go to jail. And that kind of matters. I don't want to go to jail. Now, is that moral? Not really. But it is restraining my action. It is keeping me from sin. It is keeping me from destruction. Well, before faith came, the law did that. The law said, break God's law, face a holy God who will get you. And that was actually a blessing. It refrained your hand from sin. And when faith came, you realized, I'm really glad those things didn't happen. God preserved me to be his servant. I could have been burned to a crisp before I got here, but I'm not. And then lastly, and we've already used this term, the law was, quote, our tutor, which brought us to Christ. You have children, and I hope that you know that your children are born unsaved people. I really want you to know that. Uh, There is a movement inside of the Reformed Church that wants to say, now, since we baptize our infants and we bring them up in the church and they hear the Word of God every Lord's Day and they go to Sunday school and we catechize them and we teach them the Bible in the home, uh, we're just going to presume our children are regenerate. And that's what they call it. They call it presumed uh, regeneration or justification. Uh, I'm not going to worry about bringing my child to faith because it's going to happen eventually. It's going to be very subtle. And I might as well just assume they're regenerate now because they have all the things of the covenant. This is a bad idea. All in capital letters. To, To put it in picturesque language... You give birth to vipers and diapers. And I don't want you to view your children as monsters per se, but you give birth to unsaved people, and they are fallen of nature. They're filled with original sin. Uh, As Augustine points out, given how angry they could get if they had the ability, they might strangle you in the night. Children are born needing to be regenerated. The law is part of what drives children and unsaved people in general to Christ by teaching them they need Christ. You tell your children, don't steal the cookie. You tell your children, don't hit your sister. You tell your children, uh, don't set fire to the couch. Now, they're unregenerate people. Why would you tell them to do moral things? There are some people that say, don't teach your children moral things. They can't do them. They're they're unregenerate. Well, they are unregenerate, and they need to be regenerated, but they also need to know what moral things are and the, the fact that they don't do them well, and they need to be restrained. So the law begins to really teach, like a tutor, 
you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, look at who you are. You need Jesus. The anger that is in your heart cannot be assuaged by anything but the Spirit. You need Jesus. The, the passion for wickedness that your parents tell you you need to overcome cannot be defeated by anything but the grace of God. You need Jesus. That's what the law is teaching. It teaches you need Christ. And this is a very positive thing. I've said it many times, and I I almost hesitate to say it again because it's so cliche, but in evangelicalism, there is basically the thought that the law of God is wicked. God gave a law, but he wanted to give you something better, so God actually gave you something that was evil. And Jesus came to save you from the evil law. Well, the law of God is holy, righteous, and good. And there's not a moral law in the the law of Moses that morally you shouldn't do. When you find a bird's nest and there are eggs in the nest and the bird isn't around, uh, you shouldn't crush the eggs. Now, the reason why I tell you this is because It's considered the least important law of Moses, but it's actually in the law of Moses. When you find a bird's nest with eggs, leave them alone. Is that moral? Well, yeah, because quite frankly, you were created to take care of nature. If you're going around depopulating the earth of birds, that's actually kind of immoral. There is not a thing in God's law, in his moral law, that isn't holy, righteous, and good. And it had a blessed aspect Even when you were unsaved, even when it was condemning you to hell, it was also doing all these marvelous ministrations of God that you might be brought to the Lord Christ. Uh, Next, we probably ought to ask the question, why why does Paul find it so significant that Moses was a mediator between God and man, and occasionally angels were a mediator between God and man, and that is really, really significant and something you ought to think about. What I'm talking about is verse 19 and 20. There we read this. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, and three weeks ago we looked at that, so I'm not going to build on that. If you want to know what that means, we'll talk about it later. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Okay, so what? God is one. He's he's definitely one of a kind. So what's the big deal that Moses was a mediator between man and God? Jesus is a mediator between man and God. He's a little different than Moses. How is he different? He's God. He's a mediator, but God is one and Jesus is God. Moses isn't. Why is that significant? Well, Paul has already quoted from Genesis 15. It is very definitely where he is drawing the doctrine of this chapter from. And in Genesis 15, you have God cutting the covenant with Abraham. Now, I said 
cutting the covenant, not making the covenant. Why did I put it that way? In our current culture, there's really only one place we really use the word covenant anymore. And it's when you're getting married. The minister will, in the wedding service, talk about, you know, you're making a holy covenant before God. The word will come up. But, you know, the next day when you're at work, your boss doesn't say, now let's make a covenant. Your boss says, here's a contract. But he doesn't use the word covenant, and they're not the same thing. What is a covenant? Well, marriage is a covenant, and using that language is appropriate. In the ancient world, when you would make a covenant and you would enter into a binding agreement with someone, you would not make a covenant. That's not how they talked about it. You would cut a covenant. You and I, Luke, you and I, we're going to go into business, and uh, we're going we're gonna to stipulate how our partnership is going to work. And so we write it all down. This is what our covenant is going to be. And then Luke and I go buy some animals. We go buy a steer and maybe a couple sheep. And we take an axe and we whack them in two. We cut these animals in pieces and we put a piece over here and a piece over there. And we've just freshly cut them in half. So blood is now spilling out between them. And Luke and I are officially making our covenant So now we are going to walk between the parts of the dead animals. We're going to walk through their blood, and everybody's going to watch us do it, and that is going to be the cutting of our covenant. Why did we kill those animals? Well, what's being said is Luke and I have made a promise, and if I break my promise to Luke, may what is done to these animals be done to me. Now, when you entered into a contract, you know, when you bought a house or something like that, did the realtor say, okay, let's go get a steer and you walk through the blood? Anybody hack any animals at that point? It's a contract. You can get out of it legally. But a covenant you can't get out of. You can suffer breaking it, but you can't get out of it. When you got married in the ancient world, you did this too. So imagine... Uh, you know, you're, it's your, your lovely wedding day, and you're, you're decked in your, your finery, and all your friends are around. You're going to say your vows for your covenant, and you walk through the blood of dead animals. That's just the way it worked. But it kind of gave you a feeling this is pretty permanent, and everybody walks through it who's going to uphold the covenant. Well, in chapter 15, God literally cuts the covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of faith, the covenant in Jesus Christ. And this is what we read. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, 
Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now in the New Testament, who are all those shining stars? It's you. You're the stars. In, in the promise that God makes to Abraham, he's going to have descendants without numbers, and it's going to be through his seed, Jesus Christ, and you're the stars. So that's what he's talking about. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So there's the first statement of the word faith in the Bible. And then we go on. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So, lots of animals. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. He killed them, but he didn't cut them in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for four hundred years. And also the nation to whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions." Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On that same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, and then he goes on and gives some blessing. But the animals have been cut in pieces. It is the cutting of the covenant. Abraham is asleep, and God is talking to him in his sleep. And then there is a passing between the animals. Who walks? Who, who takes that journey? Does Abraham do it? Abraham is asleep. He is laying on the ground asleep. But someone passes between the pieces. There is a supernatural manifestation. It looks like a blazing torch, and something moves between the pieces. Who is cutting the covenant? Who is going to keep the covenant? Upon whose shoulders will it rest? Was well, upon the person who walked through the animals, and God went through alone. In God's covenant with Abraham, there was no depending upon Abraham. There was no Abraham will have to hold up his end of the bargain or this thing will fall apart. God put the whole covenant on himself, the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, the covenant that makes you one of the stars, one of the redeemed people. It is on God's shoulders alone. And so when Paul says now, you know, uh, the law was obviously mediation. 
you have uh, Moses and angels going back and forth, and you have a time or two where God says, you know, Moses, I'm going to totally destroy the people. Uh, and Moses saying, no, 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 don't do that. You know, I'm, I'm going back and forth. All of that is first covenant stuff. That's man and God having an equal covenant. You don't want that. You don't want to stand and say, God, you do your half and I'll do mine. You will be utterly destroyed. The second covenant, the covenant of Jesus Christ, it is on God's shoulders alone. And there is no mediation except from God. Jesus Christ mediates between man and God, but he is God. Man is not in this equation. And Paul says when you look at Sinai, you obviously see God saying, walk before me and be blameless, keep up your end. That's the first covenant. Sinai is about transgressions. The second covenant is about God alone. And I have three more points, but it's probably time to bring this sermon to an end.